Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky. Welcome. This is actually being recorded in December, but by the time you hear this, it'll be 2021. We'll have the uh, very difficult 2020 behind us by the time you hear this. And um, but it's it's nevertheless been a, a great year for for research and papers. Um, it's been especially doing this podcast with Roz and all of the invited people. It's been fantastic, but happy 2021. I'd like to welcome Roz. And um, we also have Yannick Baba-Bekov. I got that right, right, Yannick? He's great, from thanks. University of Colorado, transplant surgeon. And he's joining us today to go over a couple of the papers. Um, and why don't we get right into business? Um, so this this uh, January edition of AJT has six editor's choice papers, so we're going to have to move quickly through these. And so what we'll start off with is Yannick is going to do the first two papers. The first one is by Kassam et al., Extinguishing Burnout, a National Analysis of Predictors and Effects of Burnout in Abdominal Transplant Surgery Fellows. That'll be interesting to hear your perspective on this, Yannick, having been through that. Then, and remember, uh, we're, we're, we're being recorded, so we'll send this yeah. directly to your program director. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm sure there'll be some editorializing here. And then Tonshoff's paper, the Cradle Study paper, it's got a long title, so I'll let you uh, mention the title, Yannick. And then Roz is going to do three kidney papers, um, weighing it all deceased donors as non-directed donors and kidney pair donation. Then Shu, oh no, that, I'm sorry. Paul et al., which is a kidney transplant program waitlisting rate as a metric to assess transplant access. And then Davis et al. on tipolimus exposure modulating the impact of HLA class 2 molecular mismatch in an American cohort. And then I'm going to finish with an interesting pediatric paper by Shu et al., improving health in, in children waiting liver transplantation. So, Yannick, let's start off with the uh, burnout paper. I think everyone's interested to hear your thoughts on that. All right. Well, hello, everybody. I first just want to wish everyone a happy new year for listening in, in 2021. I want to especially thank Dr. Levitsky and Dr. Mannon for their leadership in organizing really a, a, a truly successful podcast. So thanks very much. Okay. Without further ado, this is the first paper, Extinguishing Burnout, a National Analysis of Predictors and Effects of Burnout in Abdominal Transplant Surgery Fellows. Uh, with good reason, there's been a lot of research regarding burnout in medical professions, and especially in surgery. Uh, it's especially it also involves taking care of high patient volumes in very high stakes environments. Transplant uh, surgery fellowship in particular has a reputation of being at the extreme end of the spectrum. It involves high risk operations for really the sickest patients in the hospitals at unpredictable times. And unfortunately, it's been considered one of the least popular, least competitive mm -hmm. fellowships among U.S. graduates. Burnout has previously been assessed at the attending level. Burkus and Yost in a 2005 paper uh, surveyed 209 active surgeons and found that 38% scored high on the emotional exhaustion dimension, which indicates burnout. In this particular study, Kassam et al. aimed to assess the prevalence of burnout among transplant surgery fellows. So this has never been done at the fellowship level. They aim to identify predictors of bur burnout, again, the prevalence, and assess the impact of burnout on personal and patient care uh, during the fellowship. This is a great study organized by the ASCS Fellowship Training Committee, and it was distributed to all transplant fellows at accredited programs in the fall of 2019. Of course, everything was voluntary and anonymous. They used the Maslach Burnout Inventory Human Services Survey, 
which is an instrument that uses the Likert scale to gauge the frequency a person feels emotions that reflects three particular states, emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and personal achievement. Burnout was defined as scoring high in two of those three categories. 41 junior fellows and 43 senior fellows completed the survey for an overall response rate of 59.2%. 65% of respondents were male. The median age was 34. 67%, about two thirds, completed surgical training in the United States or Canada. And regarding a few other scales, they used a grit score and a happiness score. The respective uh, median values for those scores were 3.9 and 5.3. Kind of alarmingly, 23%, one out of four fellows met criteria for burnout. So that's the prevalence, first important finding. Predictors of burnout were assessed at the individual, the program, and then personal self-care levels. At the individual level, there weren't any differences between the demographics assessed, but fellows with lower grit scores were more likely to exhibit burnout. And to quickly point out something about the grit scale, it measures the extent to which an individual can maintain focus and perseverance while pursuing, uh, pursuing long-term goals. From a program level, a higher proportion of fellows with burnout noted severe work-related stress, that their program did not follow the ASTS managed time policy, that they worked more than 100 hours per week, and moreover, fellows with burnout were less likely to perceive their well-being as a priority to their attendings and were less comfortable approaching their program director. From a personal level and, and self-care attributes, among fellows with children, half of the fellows with burnout felt their commitment to raising a family interfered with their job. Moreover, burnout was associated with the perspective that the work schedule did not allow time for personal or home life matters. Almost 30% in the burnout group versus 0% in the no burnout group. And in addition, a minority of the fellows exercised less or more than two times per week, had any long-term financial plans or participated in any stress-reducing activities outside the hospital. Um, and of course, they looked at the stressors predicting these, these issues. They were work-life balance, job security, and finances. Now moving to the impact of burnout on, on personal life outcomes. Fellows were, with burnout were more likely to have uh, made a major medical error, 35% in the burnout group versus 5% in the no burnout group, and more likely to have considered dropping out of fellowship, 94% in the burnout group versus 20% in the no burnout group. On the personal level, fellows with burnout tended to resolve conflicts at home, um, you know, between work and personal life matters by favoring work and prioritize their career over their spouse. A higher proportion of fellows in the non-burnout group, um, I think predictably enjoyed coming to work, 88% versus 35%, and had friendly relationships with coworkers, almost 80% versus 50% in the burnout group. Self-care attributes, among the entire cohort, there weren't any significant trends, but less than half of the fellows saw a PCP or a dentist, more than half have missed a major life event. So in summary, I thought this was a, a, a great study highlighting important problems. It demonstrated that the prevalence of burnout among transplant surgery fellows is about 25%. A higher proportion of fellows with burnout experience challenges at a personal and program level. While one out of four fellows exhibited burnout, the impact of burnout on fellows is, is really worrisome. There are certainly negative effects on patient safety, care in the hospital, and also care at home and uh, professional development. 
Unfortunately, this seems to be an omnipresent problem in medicine. Maybe reassuringly, there were some modifiable factors that the authors identified at a system level. And if we improve them, we could maybe mitigate burnout. So the first would be following the ASTS managed time off policy. This was approved. There was a memo approved by the Transplant Accreditation and Certification Council in 2017. And it states that fellows should have at least two weeks of vacation, excluding time for any academic meetings. They should also be off call for at least one weekend per month and two additional 24-hour free periods in that month. And then there's another modifiable factor, you know, improving the relationship between the fellow and program leadership, um, and of course, any colleagues. The paper had a great discussion about the prevalence about burnout and surgery in many programs um, to mitigate its impact. But I really want to take just another minute or two highlighting, I think, an important initiative trans championed by the ASTS Wellness Task Force. And this is a peer support network that has uh, volunteer members, part of ASTS that have been trained, support and counseling techniques. They're available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So if you go to the ASTS website, there are senior leaders and, and junior leaders and transplant, all ASTS members that I think have their cell phones listed on the ASTS website. Wow. Um, they're available to all of us. The program takes advantage of the society's incredible culture of mentorship, collegiality, and really builds on the collective strength. Um, there's even a great webinar uh, about the program. And it's a global resource. You can talk about a tough case, tough, tough outcome, stressors at home, at work, advice about negotiating a job, really a, a wonderful resource, very thankful for the leadership. At the fellowship level, there have also been a few successful Zoom fireside chats this year hmm. where fellows can join, um, talk to one another, meet one another, and there are faculty from all over the country in surgery to, to talk about anything that's on anyone's mind. I want to give a, a big shout out to my chair here at Colorado, Dr. Liz Pomfret, who's helped take a, a lead in the initiative. I've attended a few of the meetings and, and have actually had a great time. So again, all these initiatives are on the AST, ASTS website for attendings and fellows. As a personal disclaimer, I'm a transplant surgery fellow. This is my first year. I've had an incredibly positive experience with training. For any of the junior residents listening that are interested in transplant but have a little bit of apprehension about the field, uh, more than happy to share my experience of offline. Um, reach out to me by email and, and, and happy to talk more. So thanks, Yannick. Thanks for letting me join the discussion. Really an important study. Um, it's almost a little bit cross-sectional, though, the way I sort of look at it in terms of the past and the future. Um, I imagine just from what I've seen working with as a transplant hepatologist, working with the surgical team and the surgical fellows, I, I've seen Im improvement over time in, in these aspects. So I, I, I imagine this was you probably would have had worse surveys like 10 years ago than you would now. And uh, I, I, it would be also interesting to see the impact of these efforts by ASTS on these um, these surveys, maybe in three, four years, and how things look going forward. Because it's ide certainly identifying issues in a, a sizable portion of uh, surgical fellows um, that that need to be addressed. But it, I'm really encouraged to hear that things are being done to to deal with this. But it, to my sense is that things have gotten better, but we're still further away from having, you know, much, a much better work-life balance for, for y'all. Yeah, I think the outlook is positive. You know, the, the papers 10 or 15 years ago at the attending level showed a burnout rate of 40%. Um, so clearly something starts at the fellowship level. 
but but now that it's coming to light and attendings are recognizing an issue among their peers, I think they're more in tune to issues at the fellowship level. So it's great to just work together on this issue. Yeah, I, I, I anticipate right. the outlook is, is great. All right, well, why don't we uh, move on to the cradle study? You wanna just um, go over that, the kidney transplant study with reduced tacrolimus and steroid withdrawal? Yeah, so this is a paper by Tonchoff and colleagues. Uh, I thought it was an interesting study. It aimed to assess a new immune suppression regimen in pediatric kidney transplant recipients. The aim was to mitigate the long-term side effects associated with calcineurin inhibitors and steroids. So there's been a, a big body of literature that suggested that early steroid withdrawal can improve development, pediatric development and growth um, following pediatric renal transplantation without compromising efficacy of immunosuppression or, of course, patient safety. And so the goal of this study was to assess 36-month outcomes of reduced calcineurin inhibitor exposure along with steroid withdrawal in children receiving uh, kidney transplants. By way of background, Everolimus is an mTOR inhibitor and in adult trials has been able to facilitate calcineurin reduction, inhibitor reduction without compromising efficacy or safety. In the pediatric population, an immunosuppression regimen of Everolimus and cyclosporin and early steroid withdrawal was able to mitigate CNI exposure without adverse impact or graft survival or function. But until this paper, there have not been any RCTs to assess an Everolimus regimen with reducing TAC coupled with early steroid withdrawal. So the CRADLE study was designed to address this gap. This is a follow-up paper after initial 12-month results. The first paper established efficacy and safety of this regimen in the early transition of pediatric kidney transplant recipients that initially had MMF, standard weight-based TAC, and steroids, transitioning to Everolimus reduced TAC and steroid withdrawal. Uh, and they found that they were able to maintain adequate renal function without significant adverse effects. So laid the groundwork for three-year follow-up. The initial study was a phase three multi-center open-label study. It looked at 106 uh, recipients aged one to 18, all with low immunological risk. They followed these patients after de novo kidney transplant. They all received MMF, standard TAC, and steroids for the first four to six weeks. And then they were randomized either to the new regimen, again, Everolimus, reduced TAC, and steroid withdrawal in six months, or to continue a standard regimen. And I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, should be noted that 90%, about 90% in both groups, did receive uh, basal eximab induction. Um, that's different than kind of what we do here in uh, Colorado. So the current study looked at three-year outcomes. They uh, looked at biopsy-proven rejection, graft loss, and death. There were surveillance biopsies throughout the study performed at one and three years, and also when there was any clinical suspicion for rejection. And then they also assessed markers of renal function and pediatric development and growth and uh, pubertal staging. Of the initial 106 randomized patients, 90% of the new regimen and 94% of the standard regimen completed the study uh, and had outcomes to assess up to three years. So I thought that was pretty good follow-up. Uh, the new regimen group had a higher rate of drug discontinuation, 42% versus 26%. The most common reason um, was secondary adverse events. So the authors were able to do an exposure adjusted uh, incidence rate of adverse events, and there was uh, no significant difference between the, the groups. 
regarding efficacy, the incidence of graph failure, um, which was mainly driven by a biopsy-proven rejection, was comparable between the groups. Historically, it's been about 10% in between the two groups studied, 9.8% versus 9.6%. No difference. Graph loss was low, no difference, 2.1% versus 3.8%, and there were no reported deaths. The mean estimated GFR, so now looking at renal function between the groups, at three years was comparable, 68 versus 67. And there was no difference in the development of de novo DSAs between the groups. And the development of PTLD was low, two patients in the new regimen versus one patient in the standard regimen. Again, not statistically significant. One of the things to talk about later, we have a lot of findings of no difference, 106 patients enrolled. The event rates of all these outcomes is pretty low. So you need to think about power and the risk for type two error. Moving along for other outcomes, both of the groups demonstrated an increase in height and weight. On subgroup analysis, there was um, statural growth that was more pronounced in prepubertal recipients receiving the newer regimen. With respect to some of the other metabolic profiles, the new regimen was associated, associated with a decrease in BMI, but children taking standard regimen had lower blood pressures and cholesterol levels. Regarding safety, importantly, the overall incidence of adverse events and serious adverse events was comparable between the groups. Um, we did talk about the discontinuation rate was higher in the new group, but again, on a just analysis, there's, there's no difference. And importantly, the results of this study paralleled the safety profile of Everolimus in other literature, and there weren't any new or unexpected adverse events. So this study, I think, is an important milestone in addressing long-term side effects, up to three years at least, of lifelong immunosuppression in the pediatric population. There are a few limitations uh, that were nicely addressed by the authors. One of the things you need to think about in an open-label study is that, you know, did this introduce any bias, especially in the setting of the high rate of drug discontinuation in the new regimen group? We did talk about uh, the issue of maybe if the power was low to detect any uh, differences, um, the risk of type 2 error in terms of diversity of the study population. Looking back at the initial study demographics, the, the population was largely white. So you have to think about if this is generalizable to a more diverse setting. There was a, a, a nice, uh, well-written editorial by Dr. Eileen Chambers from Duke that I think will accompany this, this publication. And it highlighted that this study may have unearthed a new mTOR-based therapy with a tolerable safety uh, and efficacy profile compared to prior attempts to mitigate the side effects of immunosuppression for pediatric recipients. So there's prior work that tried to look at serolimus, MMF, and steroids, but rejection rates were reported at almost a third, you know, 30% at one year. There's other work that looked at serolimus and TAC combinations, and they found high rates of PTLD. We didn't see that in this study at three years. And Dr. Chambers was also um, thoughtful to point out that the new regimen may be especially beneficial for EBV negative patients. This is a group that's usually at increased risk for developing PTLD. And again, given the, the growth patterns assessed in this study, this, this combination may be good for prepubertal recipients that have had suboptimal growth patterns and, and other metabolic abnormalities. So in conclusion, although this new, uh, new regimen of Everolimus reduced TAC and serotonin withdrawal had an increased rate of adverse events related to study drug discontinuation, the new regimen did provide an alternative uh, immunosuppression option that could mitigate the side effects of steroids 
and calcium inhibitors for select pediatric kidney transplant recipients. This is a new regimen that has comparable um, outcomes at 36 months, really without negatively impacting um, development. So um, this is pretty exciting, I think, for, for the field. Can I ask, what was the target uh, Everolimus levels that they uh, looked at in these kids? Do you remember, do you recall, are they using the same kind of adult level? Because the drug was never, this is really, and again, in, in adults, often it's swapped in for CNI to get rid of the CNI. But, you know, I, I think mTORs seem to be great in certain people and terrible in others. And so when you find the right combo, it seems to work well. Um, I'm impressed about the, um, the growth potential. That's a big deal because, you know, coming from an era where we were doing a lot of steroid-free in kids, it was really difficult to avoid rejection with them without hitting sort of a sweet spot of immunosuppression. And, you know, the PTLD, again, I don't know if that's a reflection more of the EBV risk, mismatch risk, or the use of basiliximab because they're not using depletional induction, but all exciting results. You know, it's pretty exciting. Um, I did have this written down. I want to make sure I, I quote the study correctly, but it looks like the target range for Everolimus was initially three to eight. Okay. Um, okay. That's about what you would do in an adult. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah figure two A has the actual what they actually achieved. In yeah. That. Yeah. And okay. sort of uh, sort of that that range looks like over time they were around in that kind of uh, three to eight range. So sometimes with these trials, they target things, but clinicians do something a little differently and they, they tend to shoot a little higher often. I think the biggest problem with mTOR, and I'm, I'm a big fan of them, but in kind of in the right patient at the right time, and I know this is a kid, pediatric kidney group, but some, some of the themes really are just remarkable across these studies, right? That the reduced without getting rid of the CNI, the rejection doesn't seem to be any, uh, any when you reduce the tech, when you're adding Everolimus, the, the side effect profile and discontinuation is just always so consistent across uh, mTOR inhibitor studies, like 20%. Or so. So it's like if you can get if you can get through it without discontinuing it, which is an, a reasonable if. It seems to patients seem to do well across the board. Yeah, I'll have to go back and look at the study. I have to admit, I was so busy with my papers, I didn't. Usually, I scan it and take a look, but um, I'll have to go back and if I think of anything, Yannick, I'll I'll shoot you an email. But th that was great and. We're going to let Yannick go. He's got a liver to do, and we're not yeah. going to be those people that are causing burnout. We're both medical yeah. doctors. We're, uh, we, we don't want to be better. on your. We don't want to be a negative on another survey. Like, <laughs> <laughs> thank is, you, Yannick. Is, happy thanks, uh, well, happy New Year, and when everyone's listening, it'll be the New Year, and and uh, keep doing organ transplants. You're doing yeah. a great job. Thanks stop again taking for those liver. Yeah, tap. Stop taking our Omaha livers. What is that? Yeah, I was there. I was in Nebraska last week. We we had a. There's a place close by to the hospital that has good meatball subs. Oh, I know where you went. Well, look outside. I've got a little bit of snow on the ground. It was only 21 today. I think I beat both of you. Yeah. But, uh, well, thanks welcome. for letting me join the, the great discussion. Happy New Year, sure. everybody. Stay safe. Sure. Thank Take you. Care. Appreciate right. it. All right, Roz, All you right. want to uh, whip through I, I your... Uh... As, yeah, so now that we gave the uh, the editorial fellow a lot of time, I'm going to zip through t uh, three papers. The first is by Wang and colleagues uh, from the University of Michigan. Uh, this is on deceased donors as non-directed donors in paired kidney donation. So for those of you that know about paired kidney donation, typically what this is is where you take 
the donor for one recipient and, and maybe they're incompatible and you provide it to another recipient and that recipient's donor goes into the former donor recipient. And so you can create groups of these chains, dominoes. Oftentimes in chains, you've got a donor, the recipients keep going and going, and then you've got a donor that's left hanging to go to the next donor. But this study was really looking at that last donor, that last living donor, not going back to the first recipient, but going to the deceased donor waiting list. And this is an important concept. It's been thought about. It's been done in individual centers a little bit, as, as pointed out by the editorial Nicole Turgeon. But, you know, and I'm not a big simulator, and I've talked about simulation papers, but if you're into simulation, this is one of those papers you're going to enjoy reading the methods. But essentially what these investigators did is they created a model using SRTR data and 2,000 pairs from the Alliance for Paired Kidney Donation. They made some broad assumptions and they evaluated and investigated two-year outcomes. And they looked at pairs arriving in KPD situation of 365 or 760. And then they just did increments of increasing these non-directed donors to the deceased donor waiting list. And voila, they found that when you add these donors into the mix, you get more transplants. You can get anywhere between 233 transplants when you use the most uh, donors coming in direct, non-directed. When you have 365 pairs or if you have more pairs in the match, 730, um, you can get up as high as about seven. Uh, you can get up to about 100, 600 or 650 transplants. So um, the notion here in the simulation is they had high quality uh, deceased donor kidneys coming to the living recipient. So KPD, uh, KDPI of 21 to 35. There's some other assumptions in here. Um, there is a difference in impact in blood type. And if you look at figure three, and I think the legend is inverted between panels A and B, you can see what I'm saying more in a pictorial fashion where the more uh, non-directed donors you have and the more pairs that you can get more transplants. And the increment is really steep. You actually see it early on and then it kind of levels off. And there's a differential between O's. The O recipients always seem to get the long short end of the stick here. But uh, Nicole Turgeon's uh, editorial was quite provocative. She talked about the complex environment of regulation, the difficulty in doing this. If we tried to do this as a test project again at a national level, would we do a single center? Would we do one of these alliances? Would we do multi-center? Is a pilot going to be generalizable to the real world? Um, and is it going to be available to diverse populations? Uh, there was a lot of public comment in UNOS when they talked about some of the regulation of these things where kids and uh, high CPRA patients would be uh, considered as sort of at a difficulty. And really, what do you really feel about, you know, what if I have a living donor, I've got kidney failure and they're 60 and they're in okay health, they, they pass, but I get a KDRI kidney from a 15 year old. And then my donor's kidney, say it's my spouse, not, you know, going to the list. And is that really a fair exchange? And so lots to be discussed in that paper. But uh, again, uh, Dr. Turgeon's editorial was more thought provoking than uh, pointing sharp items at you. Uh, the second paper, go ahead. Can I ask Sorry. a question, Roz? How many programs are, what percentage of kidney programs are doing kidney pair donation? That's a good question. Uh, you know, you know we, like, yeah, I can't tell. I mean, there's what, 250 programs about. 
A lot of them are in the NASH, that uh, NKR program. Uh, we're not. A lot of larger centers, including our own, do our own internal swaps. But I'd have to look that up for you. I couldn't give you a number. I'd be but making the, it up. The growth in that has been pretty significant over the last. Oh, five absolutely! Years. If yeah. you look at if, if you look at the SRTR report, which is coming out in age eighteen next month for twenty the twenty twenty data the twenty twenty data will come out in twenty twenty one. Or, I mean, I'm sorry, the 2019 data will be coming out in January. You'll see a considerable continued uptick in paired kidney donation. Yeah, you're going to um, see liver Liver is going to start coming with this. Um, there'll be a report yeah. soon. We'll, prob we'll probably be reviewing it in at UCSF where they did a liver exchange. Um, wow. Internal exchange within their own with their own Yeah, family. between it. Yeah, exactly. Within their own so, transplant family, not yeah. family members. Gotcha. Yeah, so. Okay. I don't think you can do heart or lung, but <laughs> it might be hard. Heart, heart, definitely no, but lung, maybe, I don't know. I, and you know, it really is, is tough because these donors are under such physiologic duress and stress and the programs yeah. are too. And everybody thinks a kidney is a slam dunk, but I, I know that the planning that goes into a living donor, especially in these, in these swaps and these and paired donation is really critical because especially if you're in one of these multi-center alliances where, you know, if you mess up, it just completely busts the whole program back. And this paper actually talks about Renee grades, uh, technolo technical issues, which are uncommon that fail to bring that donor forward. And of course, patient refusal where the donor says, I don't want to be bothered with this. I've had second thoughts. So um, interesting paper. I'm going to keep moving because we're running out yeah. of time. The, the yeah, next paper please, is by, by Paul and colleagues. Uh, from Rachel Patzer's group, but includes a number of other uh, co-authors that uh, are interested in uh, organ or kidney transplant access. So the premise of this paper is that the SRTR met metric for transplant rate, that is the total number of transplants performed per weightless population is maybe not really a helpful metric. And especially with the American um, access to kidney um, the, the act that Trump signed where we're trying to do more and there's an incentive to get more patients transplanted, you know, the question is whether that's the right metric. And so it's been a hypothesis of this group that the real money is in the waitlist rate, that we really should be looking at what's called a waitlist rate, which is really refers to the total number of individuals referred to your center, and in this case, kidney referrals, to those that are actually waitlisted. So the denominator is those referral numbers. And, you know, essentially they studied their own, um, they, they frequently use end-stage renal disease network six. It's Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and includes nine transplant centers. And what they did is they looked at uh, uh, access data from about three years from all those individuals, and then calculated both their new metric, the waitlist rate, and the transplant rate and the and the waitlist rate, you know, again, it's one of those observed over expected uh, range from 0.76 to 1.33 as a rate. So some were above one and some were below one. And they also looked at it relative to the transplant rate. And guess what? There's no correlation. I would have thought, well, if you have less people on your waiting list and you're getting the same number of kidneys, your rate might look better. But actually, it shows you that there's a dissociation in these processes. And indeed, their call is to really consider doing a, a further national investigation and, and getting the, at these data. Uh, Jesse Scholl had a terrific, um, as usual, editorial talking about this metric. Little cautionary tale about do we want more metrics? And if so, 
you know, let's just be careful when we do it. But again, highlighting that um, this is a great proof of concept that you can get this data, you can aggregate it, and you can look at it. He also highlighted, as they did, that there's no specific best practices to wait list, that some of the determination of putting a patient on the wait list are difficult things like regional organ supply, a calculation of patient mortality on the waiting list, knowing that the access of these kidneys may be limited, and also the sort of expected social I don't want to call it mores, but, you know, accessibility socially, meaning do you have transportation in these rural environments from the one I came at in Alabama to even here, can you get across the state? There is no public transportation. You can't afford an Uber. You can't rely on your, on your spouse who may be working. So it's easy to say in New York City or Philly or, you know, Chicago even, hey, just keep listing everywhere in the city. You can't really do that here. You can't say to somebody, hey, go to Kansas City. It's a two and a half hour drive. So I thought he pointed out some of the challenges. And again, the, the point here is really transparency in terms of the wait list. And, and again, one of the few places that has that kind of transparency is the VA, where there's very specific criteria in order to at least be seen and considered. And he also pointed out maybe doing this in the other organs, which I thought was sort of a novel idea yeah. as well. All right. Without any further ado, my last paper is by Davis et al. This is uh, from the University of Colorado. This is a clinical kidney paper. Uh, last month, we talked about the role of molecular tissue typing in donor and recipient evaluation and how it might have benefit. This paper actually uh, formulates and includes Peter Nickerson as a collaborator and fundamentally evaluates the notion of this eplet mismatch. And remember, eplets are these small amino acids on HLA molecules that can be quantified and be different between donor and recipient. And as Peter and Chris Weeb have shown in multiple papers, these mismatches uh, can lead to high, you can risk stratify and prognosticate who's going to be at higher risk for de novo DSA. So this study, I think, stands, in fr frankly, as a validation cohort a significant one because it's a different country uh, by North America. The ethnicity was a little slightly more white than uh, Canada, believe it or not, about 29% were non-white ethnicity. Canada, actually 35% more of ind indigenous uh, individuals in Manitoba. But again, of their nearly 450 patients over six years, they identified this molecular mismatch retrospectively. Importantly, they noted that in this cohort who did not have DSA prior to transplant, that about 19% of individuals in the whole cohort developed DSA. Of those, 47 uh, developed it in DR or DQ. And again, the applet mismatch here that they were focusing on was DR-beta-1, uh, DQ-alpha-1, and DQ-beta-1. The vast majority of these antibodies had a low MFI. Two-thirds were under 1,000, which is still, their cutoff was greater than 500 and at least two standard deviations above the negative control. A third were greater than 1,000, and only six were greater than 10,000, which you would say is sky high. You know, they risk stratified using the Manitoba labs uh, epilet mismatch threshold, whether it was greater than seven or greater than nine, and created low, intermediate, and high-risk patients expected to get DSA. And importantly, only 2% of the low-risk patients developed DSA. DSA was mostly frequented in these intermediate and high-risk patients. And then they looked at the other impact, the other impact that uh, Dr. Nickerson and, and we talk about, which is the tacrolimus level. You know, a lot of us go, you know, six to nine, you know, 12, to 10, 10 to 12 in the first few months, and then we dribble down, and then we're like, 
three to six or three to eight. It's all over the place. And I think a lot of us are now sort of saying, hey, Dr. Nickerson noted a level of five. So here they look at the TAC levels and the, the mean for the cohort was about seven, which I think is pretty good out beyond a year. Um, they found that when they did multivariate analysis in patients that had a tacrolimus level less than six, at least I think on two measures, they had a hazard ratio of, of 2.3 to develop de novo DSA. This risk went sky high in the intermediate to 15 hazard ratio compared to low risk and 24. So 24 fold the risk of DSA when your TAC level is low. And those numbers are very similar to, to Chris and uh, Peter's paper. So again, nice confirmation of the data, um, limitations at the small sample. There are very few African-Americans, only about 9%, whereas US overall is about 21%. The low risk group was too small to really make any more inform informative decisions. And finally, Annette Jackson and Dave Pinelli had a really nice uh, editorial. So if you're just busy and you don't have time to read the paper, which I say you should read the paper, you can read the editorial because they lay out some points, again, talking about serological versus molecular assessment, um, the, the goals of molecular typing, which are really an opportunity, I think, maybe more difficult in, in the time constraints of a, of a deceased donor, but at least the ability to calculate, back calculate, perhaps. And, and we're moving forward with better technology. So again, nice to see a completely different place operating in the in the fashion that was envisioned using epilet mismatching. And again, just as um, a, a statement of public fact, uh, the epilet mismatching uh, as a prognostic biomarker is it's underway in submission to the Food and Drug Administration by Dr. Nickerson. Yeah, it's really like precision medicine in a way, right? You have this, and and you're able to maybe use that data to target CNI levels you know, at a different range for different well, matches. And, mismatches. I, and I didn't mention that half of this cohort got a rapid ATG based on these clinical parameters of immune high risk. And I put that in qu air quotations because what it really looks like is there's a good portion of patients that didn't need to get the therapy. So you could cut down on the, the need for the drug, which is not cheap. And you so you can improve the cost of doing transplant and also uh, perhaps avoid complications. I mean, we all use it, but you know, maybe it's a little over immunosuppression for those patients. So good points. Yeah, great. Okay, so I'm going to finish with the uh, the liver paper. Actually, this would have been a good one to have invited a pediatric expert, but uh, I can go over it and just try to give some thoughts about it because I think it's super interesting and and concerning um, in terms of the pediatric liver transplant population and the value of the PELD score in this current day and age. So this group, uh, led by Evelyn Shu from the University of Washington, working with members of the SRTR, gathered the last sort of 20 years of data of waitlisted pediatric patients, and noting that the PELD score, which is pediatric end-stage liver disease score, if you all aren't familiar, is really, it's the pediatric version of MELD, which is the adult score. And this is used for uh, children under the age of 12, where if you're under above 12, the MELD score is what applies. And the PELD score is really old. It actually was developed uh, nearly 20 years ago. And the, the question is, and you can see these reports coming out now about how do these predictive scores like MELD and PELD work in this day and age when you have 
kind of a different patient population than you did back 15, 20 years ago. And one of the big reasons that this is being done in pediatrics is that it's clear that in liver transplant, I'm sure in other organ transplants, that um, unfortunately pediatric candidates are disadvantaged on the wait list. And um, actually the, the, uh, the editorial that accompanies this by, I think this is in your old neck of the woods, McLennan or, and Orandi, and at UAB talk about how 30% of pediatric uh, liver transplant candidates apply for exceptions for points where it's only like uh, for non-standard exceptions where it's only like eight or 9% in adults. And this is because it, it takes a long time for them to get organs. And the question is, is the PELD score responsible for this? So this group basically, huh. basically took the last, I think about 12 years of data, 2005 to 2017. And um, you know, they had some exclusions for status one patients and listings that excluded with specific specific uh, sort of non-chronic liver disease diagnoses, sort of metabolic diseases, and um, looked at um, over 5,000 child listings and um, tested to see um, through a number of different uh, analytical methods, um, PELD versus a newly developed score, which they're sort of borrowing from the adults, which is uh, PELD sodium creatinine. So, you know, our MELD is INR, bilirubin, and creatinine. And the current PELD score, uh, the, there's only two of those included in there, which is bilirubin and INR. The PELD includes uh, a minimum of height or weight Z-score. So it's utilizing growth failure as one of the predictors of weightless mortality. And also albumin and age are included in the current PELD score. And so what this group did is they took the current PELD score and added sodium, which we now have meld sodium, and creatinine, which is in our current adult meld, to see if this um, prediction of weightless mortality could be enhanced. How is it different than the current PELD score looking back at the last 12, 13 years of patients since PELD was developed? And um, the gist of the matter is the PELD sodium creatinine was better than the current PELD in predicting weightless mortality. This is 180-day mortality instead of 90 days. So they looked a little bit further out. And so it was about, um, the AUC was about um, 0.05 better in terms of uh, prediction. And an important table is table number three. They show how many more patients would be listed at a higher PELD sodium creatinine than the current PELD if they used held sodium creatinine. So, you know, I think this is a uh, this is an, a really interesting exercise to show perhaps the deficiencies in the current PELD score. And I know the pediatric groups are working at trying to enhance PELD and make it more like MELD where, you know, the sickest first and that patients are transplanted more quickly based on your level of illness. And I think it just shows that adding sodium and creatinine, which is which are markers of portal hypertension, do enhance the prediction of weightless mortality. I think the, the issue here is this was sort of the first effort to do this so it was just a derivation cohort. There was no validation cohort. They just didn't have enough patients um, to do that in the in the um, SRTR. It really kind of needs to be considered, sort of as a um, you know for when they're when you're looking at changing the model. I think the the idea here is that um, there's a number of different efforts to 
to sort of change the current model from Peld and also deal with things like really significant growth failure. And these remember that this growth failure gap, gap paper we had last year. So, you know, this is uh, the, the, the review, uh, the editorial on it was really good and kind of pointing out that this was definitely an, a step towards the right direction for highlighting, more highlighting the deficiencies in Peld and um, coming up with ways that can really grasp and understand the weightless mortality to, to approximate this to more like adults. And it's just still surprising to me that that we have a, uh, a better predictor of weightless mortality in adults than children in the US. It should be technically the other way around, right? These are kids. I think uh, that's the impetus going forward. I imagine we're gonna see these types of models being put forward to um, allocation uh, modifications in the near future for, for pediatric liver. And uh, I hope that um, we can get in a, in a state where we're taking held to the next level where, you know, we have a reduction in weightless deaths, more, more liver transplants than before. So it, it was really a kind of an eye-opening paper, but uh, more to be done. Well, I, I, Josh, great comments. And, um, you know, we've had so much accumulated data. I mean, certainly in the adult, I know the creatinine drives the meld. So when that renal failure yeah. piece goes away, if you're lucky, it always seems to disappear. But those are great comments. And um, I just want to thank you. It's been a rough year. I think, um, you know, yeah. I think we, you and I have presented on podcasts almost 100 papers um, because we had those two COVID podcasts where we we're rolling for the ride, but uh, Laura Danziger Itzikoff did, uh, I don't know, like 10 papers, uh, a podcast. So um, we do review the papers and, uh, and I moved in the middle of the winter right before COVID. So uh, it's been a great, uh, interesting year for me, but I'm not unhappy. I've enjoyed doing this with you. And likewise, yeah, I hope you have a, a you're, you're shouldering the burden of a lot of this though, because a lot of these are kidney papers. So Those maybe, I mean, I, I think it's good. It just shows that there's just so much great research being done um, just across the board, basic translation, translational clinical. And I think AJT is really the forefront for, for all of these papers coming in. And it's, it's great to work with you, Roz. And by the time this is out, we'll be in 2021 and hopefully we're on to a better year. It can't be kind of can't be worse, right? <laughs> well, I say that, and then I think about all the funerals I have to go to next year of the people that passed away that I know pretty well. well yeah, no, it's okay. But on a positive note, uh, I think we stumped up burnout in surgical residents, so I'm really excited. No, the opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com that's amjtransplant.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.